yeah, this I don't know why this week was just intense and busy. Um, I'm glad it's Friday. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that helps much these days, but anyway, I'm for some reason What's glad a it's Friday. <laughs> What's a Friday? What day is it? What's a, Where am What's I? What's a weekend? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I know. I, I, you know, I've never been into um, um, meditation or anything like that, right? So, but uh, I know that there is a, this uh, such an amazing viral video on TikTok in Ukrainian uh, about so basically that uh, an attempt to uh, create a perfect meditation um, uh, video for Ukrainians, and it paint it, it has like nice music. And the uh, uh, voiceover says, like, imagine, you know, you're on the border, on the eastern border of Ukraine, and it's Kharkiv Oblast. And what you're seeing is a massive ocean of Stepan Badera. And you're on the beach <laughs> at the eastern border. And all our eastern borders, all our borders with Russia is just a beautiful ocean beach. And it, uh, it helps. I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's so effective. Yeah, yeah. One day. <laughs> Ukrainian, oh, yeah. uh, what is it? Meditation slash ASMR or whatever it's called. Yeah, it's uh, it's also a very Ukrainian thing to try to joke about stuff that uh, we unfortunately have to endure and uh, process through every day. And one of our Ukrainian spaces, family members, Alekshin, posted today extremely heartbreaking message um actually for all those people uh, still trying to lecture us how to negotiate into the inside the situation so he wrote um my high school mate died today after a russian bomb hit his cafe his mom survived and my middle school teacher was shot in the head by a russian soldier trying to evacuate her daughter and she's now in coma there's this new level of grief we have to live with every fucking day, Oleg writes on his Twitter. So I really felt through all of this because there's so much stuff that you um, have to go through and uh, unfortunately it's going to be much more of it in coming weeks or months. But uh, nevertheless, we all have to do something to make sure that any sacrifices are there um, just tiny bit respected and in a way that part of this job is making sure that people do not forget that this kind of tragedy this genocide in the middle of europe is happening every second of every day and um you know our job is make sure that nobody forgets it right yeah which is why we're here as well to talk about yeah. Ukraine and elevate even more Ukrainian voices. And I'm so happy that we Maxim, never run out of new guests to join us every week, which I think is yeah. just testament to how much there is, um, how much there is to talk about and how many amazing people and experts there are in Ukraine to talk about Ukraine itself. For our sponsors, we're having growing committed community of sponsors on Patreon. And thanks to you, this uh, show remains 100% independent, volunteer, and listener-supported. And it wouldn't be possible to go on without you. And actually, we're happy to announce that we're really fine um, at the point where we finally can um, find some help and hire some help to make sure that our at least social media game is stronger than it is. 
But nevertheless, we need more of support. So please um, go to our Patreon uh, page, sponsor, become our sponsor. Uh, you get a lot of extra bonus stuff. But most importantly, as a sponsor, you get a front seat at Ukrainian Spaces broadcasts, and you can ask your questions in person or through comments uh, with a priority. So yeah, a lot of cool stuff. And I think uh, we're ready to move to our featured Ukrainian. And Ivani, are you with us right here? Yep. Hi, everyone. Hey, Slava Ukraini. Hello, Slava. Um, so, Ivani, um, I'm super excited to have you. You're one of my literally most favorite uh, people on Twitter and beyond in terms of, um, in terms of uh, thoughts and perspectives you always share. But uh, we have a golden rule on Ukrainian spaces that we never introduce our guests and feature Ukrainians and allow them to have that space to introduce themselves the way they want it. So please share with everyone else uh, who you are, what you do, and what your life has, has been since the genocide started. I'm a historian, and as I like to say, I'm an accidental sociologist, though I'm not claimed, claiming to be a trained sociologist. I'm a trained, a trained historian by, and trained historian by vocation. I'm a, um, um, at the moment, uh, uh, I'm a, a graduate student um, in history uh, at the uh, Yale University. Also, um, European Studies Fellow at the Macmillan Center for International Area Studies, also at Yale. And um, um, also a member of a couple organizations uh, um, doing um, historical work and analytical work uh, with regard to um, social implications of war. Uh, but most importantly, most importantly, I'm a um, native of Luhansk. For God knows, only knows how many generations. Uh, at least since the uh, mid nineteenth century, my family resides in Luhansk. Um, uh, yeah, and this uh, war, this, this genocide, started for me um, literally, um, literally um, eight years ago. In three days, it will be a eighth anniversary of. Uh, by uh, beginning of my captivity by uh, Russians, so when I was uh, took to the basement, as we called it, uh, called it back, back then, and um, um, yeah, um, uh, I was experiencing this war firsthand um, uh, since 2014, and was trying to deal with this uh, with it on the social side, um, yeah. basically since then. Can I can I ask you a bit of personal question right away? Um, but um, as a person, as a person from Luhansk and from Donbas, and you know, seeing everything that is happening today, and uh, how do you feel about the missed opportunities that the world had when it comes to dealing with Russia since the invasion of twenty fourteen? Because I mean, personally, I feel, I even I feel guilty every day because I know so many people from Donbass and from occupied territories who have been telling us that this needs to be resolved 
now and the territories, occupied territories should be liberated. If that one happened, they would say before this will spread. And they were right. And I feel a bit guilty that we tried to normalize it for so many years, even the Ukrainians, not, notwithstanding the rest of the world. So how do you feel today, um, you know, basically understanding that people from, from Eastern Ukraine, from Donbass, they were right all this time? For the last eight years, um, we was observing um, desired um, silence about the war, uh, both inside Ukraine and outside Ukraine. Um, I think beginning late 2015, for, from, my, from my perspective, late 2015, the whole conversation about war uh, was happening through the Minsk agreement and through any way possible to um, prolong this inevitable uh, next stage uh, of uh, um, hot armed conflict as human, international humanitarian law does, uh, um, um, define it. Though, um, from the perspective of uh, a per person from Donbass, um, this has always been a um, experience of being a crazy person in the room. It's always been a, a, a uh, person who and at the same time makes jokes about war because um, as for now, and you mentioned this, it's like for all of the Ukrainians, it became a routine experience. It, it became a routine process of uh, digesting the horrors of war. People are getting used for everything. And we know this, we knew this kind of, uh, every person, every historian knows that's like it's, uh, 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 people are uh, doing more, more or less the same stuff, but in different circumstances. Though that's why the history does not repeat itself, but people just do the same stuff. Uh, res results are different. So uh, at the end of the day, we are looking at the situation when for eight years, there was a very small portion of people who was not always even crying out. There was just a, um, usually a numb monuments for displacement, uh, for the humanitarian crisis. Um, I think about four years ago, I gave a lecture in the uh, new place of Izalatse in Kyiv, I-Zone, uh, mm. about, about blockade of Luhansk. Uh, and because for almost 60 days, for 55 days, uh, Luhansk was without electricity, without water, without sewage, without connection to the other world. Uh, in 2014, you mean, In 2014, right? August 3rd uh, till late September. Um, so, uh, and like, I was there with like my whole family and, and uh, this uh, situation was never uh, properly described as was never the experience of IDPs properly described. Just last year, I was starting, I started writing um, essay, which I hope to finish soon uh, and remade, remaster this, uh, because it, it is about the experience of IDPs. And uh, the punchline, the last argument of the essay, it's larger piece, uh, is that though we had to go through, we have to went through um, 
horrendous endeavor of uh, of bureaucracy and of the state and the people who didn't want us to recognize through through the ostracism through the um, um, well the all kinds of um, xenophobia institutional xenophobia for uh, at the first place mm-hmm. but yeah. uh, we all learned how to deal with this and uh, my punchline when i wrote the first draft before february 21st was that's when it all when when it will uh, when the next stage will come we will be the people who uh, will figure out the best ways to deal with us first yeah. because we've yeah. already been there But in a way, it's, of course, like, you know, as you said, for people who were internally displaced and from 2014, and now many are internally displaced again, it's something, you know, as we keep saying, war affects different people in different ways. And I think that's super important to acknowledge whenever we do speak about Ukraine and whenever we do talk to Ukrainians that, you know, war has affected different people differently and particularly people who have already gone through this once. It must be really hard to go through it again or maybe easier as you said you're the first one to deal with it it is uh, actually well we don't have any data yet on this because from anecdotal evidence i get i get from different friends of mine etc the uh, the readiness to take off is there and it's uh easier though for those who are losing their their housing their for, for those who uh, whose um, apartments and houses was, were destroyed, it's, um, it's basically re-traumatization. Yeah. So, um, yes, those people are more capable. It's like when pandemic started two years ago, I was telling a few of my friends that, who was panicking and like didn't know what to do. And I started to coaching my friends on like how you survive in the dire circumstances. And for me, it was, was a warlike experience. And, uh, and I then realized that like, I feel myself more safe in those, um, um, well, in those extreme points. And yeah. the, because, because this, uh, this experience roll you back to the yeah. memories of the uh, horrors of war and you just mobilize for that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is, um, this experience is um, obviously um, invincible inside us, but it's also, yeah. uh, it's a, it's also um, like a rust, right? Uh, uh, growing, on, uh, growing on us and making us not that, not that, um sensible for lots of the problems and 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 um lots of idps are just for for years was trying to blend in in new communities and uh just pretend their life before 2014 would never happen Maxim obviously is, has that massive thread on colonialism in general, Russian colonialism in general, covering loads of different places um, around the world in relation to 
you know, the, the exercise of Russian colonialism in those places. But you have, uh, I think, Maxim pinned your tweet on Donbass in particular. Um, you know, something that frustrates me a lot of the time with with Western coverage is that there's like this weird in a lot of people's perception, di- not dichotomy, but like the West versus Russia and everything in between seems like this big black box with no history of its of its own, that everything revolves around other big sort of events that have happened in Russia and, and in the US. But I wanted to ask you, and I know this will probably take a very long time and we can have a whole lecture with you on this, but for our audiences who are here and who for the first time are learning a bit about Russian colonialism in Donbass, what would be some of the main things that you would ask people to learn or know about why we are in the situation we are today in relation to the practices of Russian colonialism? Well, that, uh, again, the problem here is uh, uh, is basically bifold. First thing is a uh, problem of perception, perception of Ukrainian statehood. Lots of the, um, well, Westerners, and sometimes they're very educated people, and some, but they're like, they're not historians or they're not people of social sciences or humanities. They're like, I don't know, architects. Uh, and uh, they... Um, they have a basic attitude to uh, towards Ukraine as a as a terra incognita, as a, as a state appeared after 1991, and um, honestly, it is actually the case. So, like uh, to study few years of uh, Ukrainian statehood uh, after the uh, dissolution of uh, Russian Empire, uh, it's um, um, well, actually, to be honest, failed attempt uh for various reasons but this perception is uh first perception uh, is built on that and secondly the problem is that the um question of land is and the perception of land and the territories it's heavily dictated by russia so in this uh circumstances you go to germany and those people whom you will uh, who, uh, whom you will tell that you are from ukraine uh, six months ago, 12 months ago, uh, people of the age of, I don't know, our parents would say that, ah, oh, this is Russia, or, oh, this is part of Russia. Um, and uh, they have this uh, certain level of uh, um, semantic legitim- legitimacy, because, like, in their minds, Ukraine is a fallout territory from Soviet Union. Soviet Union, in their perception, equals Russia. And this is the biggest problem in the, I would say, in area studies for those historians, sociologists, etc., who study region, that's uh, people from um, uh, social sciences and humanities come to study, I don't know, Ukraine or Georgia or uh, Turkmenistan through first learning Russian. And then they go to Ukraine and they see Ukraine or Georgia or Turkmenistan through the lenses of Russian speaker who learned additional language, sometimes not always. And this is the the biggest problem because then those people who learn about this territory, some of them becoming um, those people, as you mentioned, uh, pundits uh, who will explain to Western audience that um, the the nature of the conflict or the nature of the war or the nature of the humanitarian issues or who are who ukrainians are 
or what or what the borscht is. So like it's um, it, it's this twofold problem of the perception of the state and perception of the territories and the additional asterisks on this of the people who actually learn about this. And uh, if you go to like to the um, um, problem of what what people should know, um, well, heck, people uh, should not know. They should read uh, books. Or they they should read some uh, some people who actually uh, study the region. And you mentioned my uh, like uh, this crazy long Twitter thread about the history of Donbas, which is which is heavily inaccurate in lots of places. It actually took me about like. 10 days to write the thing and uh, about 12 books to take from Yale library. So the thing is the first thing uh, everybody should know that's uh, it's um, basically Ukrainian territory being a cradle of the whole civilizational uh, um, well appearance of Eastern Slavs of uh, Eastern Slavic nations. And uh, Basically, uh, if we want to claim some dominances, it's Ukrainian-based dominance. But the if you if we talk about the territories of Donbas, of the like, this wild step, because like Don and this, uh, the the very important thing about Donbas, everybody have to um, uh, realize in the first in, uh, uh, well in the first place that Donbas itself doesn't exist. It's a myth created by. Uh, uh, first of all, Soviet propaganda. So it's economical region with no particular uh, ident- uh, I- particular identity or part- or particular culture or particular you, language. You mean like uh, colon um, identity that was constructed by colonialism and you know the narratives of Soviet colonialism or Russian colonialism? Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. So like it, first, it's a very blunt and simple economical colonization. So the territories were uh, sold out, rented out, to be specific, uh, by the uh, Russian imperial government to the huge Western companies. That's where we know we have all of this story about, like, John Hughes, uh, founding uh, father of Donetsk, Karl Gascoigne, founding father of, uh, of Luhansk. We have... Uh, Belgians building Lysychansk, we have uh, Belgians building Konstantinovka, we have uh, fr- uh, French and Italian and um, uh, whatever uh, businesses coming, also British business coming to Mariupol to build uh, to build the factory, not just to build factory. Mariupol steel plant was the first ever in human history uh, planned uh, steel pipe, which was deconstructed in Portsmouth and taken by the sea to Mariupol and de- and assembled again from uh, so like this basically was like first transfer of the industry in the in the human kind history so like this is the whole territory was simply rented out to big businesses imagine like i don't know today um some uh, huge corporations amazon uh, building uh, warehouses in Donbas, and local people just come to work because uh, usually there are always poor people uh, somewhere in some villages who have too many kids or had few bad years. And for instance, uh, my great grandfather was one of those people who 
uh, was since he was four, 14 coming from nearby village to Luhansk to work on this uh, on locomotive building factory. I'm now gonna pin um, uh, a documentary that actually has uh, English uh, uh, subtitles, which is called Euro Donbass. And it's amazing documentary done by one of my colleagues uh, on exactly what you're saying in terms of a legacy, European legacy of why their Belgium neighborhood uh, architecture in uh, Donbass, why they're you know, cities that were built by French and uh, other European architects is something that then was appropriated by Russia saying, well, this is like Russia built this, which wasn't, was it, it's not the fact. It, it's, 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 it's another side of the colonial history. So basically it's um, like saying, oh, uh, New York was built by um, Dutch people. Yes, of course, but though the, but they were colonizers. Uh, so uh, this is the, was the, so uh, this is the, was the same thing. Like we we have those beautiful buildings. We have like uh, Polish uh, uh, Polish nobility was sent to to Donbas in the large numbers after uh, two uh, uprisings in the 18th century, and we have like few mentions in Luhansk and Danskoblas of the Polish nobility. They're small, but they're like very specific um uh, po uh polish names after those so basically you have um those europeans coming to um well use the cheap labor and uh, build their steel pipes coal mines etc uh but uh essentially you have a uh, ukrainian villages you have uh, um basically population who come there first of all to work and then by the growing of the economy, uh, more people from the neighboring regions are coming. And we have uh, the uh, first Russian imperial census of uh, 1897. We have about 25% of the uh, uh, people living in um, uh, in districts, which now comprise Lohansk and Donetsk Oblast, uh, were, who were, were born, born outside of Katerinoslav governorate, which it was Lohansk and Donetsk Oblast with part of. Uh, it doesn't mean that all of those people are came from I don't know Urals. Mostly those people are came from uh, Kharkiv or Poltava. Uh, other Ukrainian, so other Ukrainian there, regions. There, there, of course, were like it's all it's all mishmash of nations. Of course, there were, uh, as I mentioned, uh, there were Serbians, there were people, there were Moldavians, there were Jews in a large number. Jews usually comprised about 10% of the cities and uh, of the cities. And the whole Donbass became, started to crystallize as um, urban culture center. So the whole identity, uh, which bearing right now the myth of Donbass, it's urban myth. It's a myth uh. about, uh, about, uh, about a restless urbanization. And I can say that's like, even for me being a historian of the place, it's it's still striking. For instance, when I moved from Luhansk to Lviv to study uh, to make my uh, to to get my masters, uh, it was odd for me to hear that somebody is coming from the place where it's about like ten thousand people population, and they call <laughs> this place yeah. a city. Yeah, and, but for uh, me, as a person from Eastern Ukraine, it's uh, you know quite the same. Was always um, shocking 
when uh, when to see the rest of the country, especially the western part of Ukraine that is more rural, and compared to our eastern part that is like city after city after city, city merging in, into cities. This just uh, was really strikingly different. Yes, absolutely. And this is always was like, and this is became a centerpiece of the Soviet mythology. There are a few wonderful, if you again, about, um, about those who are interested in understanding the process, like the whole epistemology, the process of understanding of the region, and uh, not Donbass, at large, the whole post-Soviet Soviet region. There's a wonderful a larger article by uh, Professor Stephen Kotkin from Princeton called Mongolian, the Mongolian Commonwealth, where he criticizing uh, the whole changing of those university centers for Soviet studies into whatever. They became Eastern European studies, Eurasian studies, Eastern European and Eurasian, Russian studies, whatever. But uh, you go to Russian studies and there are people who study Kazakhstan there. So they could, mm -hmm. this is this is the large problem also. Um, can I can I also ask you because one of the uh, the last actually tweet into in this uh, thread and literally I would say that if you ever say if you're a foreigner and if you ever say Donbass uh, coming from your mouth I think you shouldn't be doing that without at least reading this thread but even more so but the last uh, tweet in this I feel extremely powerful message that you send out. And it says, the step east of Ukraine was an early modern frontier that Ukrainians have long settled. Resemblance to the Wild West can only be attributed to the fact that in the end, an empire arrived and sought to exterminate the native population. And actually, I wanted to ask you about this lost history. I mean, most, uh, you know, most of the cases it's about Eastern Southern Ukraine where there are hundreds and hundreds of years of history of either indigenous populations or Ukrainians living, um, settling in, in those parts of the country. But it's, it's been erased by Russian colonialism, especially in recent years, by claiming that this was no one's land. And when this genocide started, I think this uh, question became even more prominent because the whole... Um, the whole reasoning for this genocide uh, stems basically with a similar argument that it's been no man's land and then Russians came and it became Russian. So, yeah, if you want to like highlight for other foreigners how exactly uh, those hundreds of years of history were missed or erased by Russian colonialism. Uh, there's not, it, it, it wasn't just erased, it was blended in, it was made into whatever weird omelette of these stories. Um, so the, uh, the here, um, um, the whole colonization process of the, of the East of the, or the Ukrainian steppes uh, was a absolutely normal process of po population of the territories. It was, for a long time, it was the territory of the um, well, particles of the former uh, Mongolian empires, but particularly of the uh, Crimean Khanate and uh, uh, Nogai, smaller, small Nogai Khanate. Uh, and um, um, Ukrainians were settling there by the different definitions beginning mid uh, uh, 
13th century, century or so. The uh, mixture of the nations, uh, bec again, become, uh, becoming a thing with the modernization and with the 18th century and 19th century rolling in and economy rising and people are coming. So this is how this patchwork of people uh, appear. It's, it's uh, as simple as it's a product of modernization. It's a product of uh, people seeking for uh, more land to work on. And uh, uh, unlike the Wild West, uh, there were uh, almost no uh, um, fighting for the land with the local people because it was basically a uh, place where lots of frontiers uh, was happening. Frontier between Ukrainian Cossacks, well, basically uh, Zaporizhia Cossacks and Don Cossacks. The frontier between Slavs and uh, Tatars, Tatars uh, on the on the south. The then frontier between Cossack state and Moscovy. And um, there is a also good book by one of advisors of mine, Hiroki Kuramiya, called Freedom and Terror in Donbass. Um, uh, this is basically essentially the best book on history of, of Donbass ever written, period. And usually Borderland is, a, as, uh, is as space of uh, conflict as space of opportunity. And for some people, there was a uh, rescue place because this modernization uh, gave opportunities for um, for Jews who for to to whom Russian Empire came in uh, eight, late eighteenth century by uh, by divisions of Poland to have some free place and not appear in, in not stay in shtetls in the small Jewish uh, towns for German Mennonites to find their place and. Uh, to have some rest from from being hunted by other religious groups, to um, Crimean Greeks to find uh, to have their place and play their place for of uh, religious freedom, and etc. etc. And it, and it also goes to um, to criminals. It also goes to those people who was like hiding uh, hiding from law, both uh, physically running away and hiding underground. Valeria, you're Russian language, uh, Ukrainian, uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainian. Is that right? And Yevhenny, are you originally what was your first language? Oh, uh, I usually say that uh, I have three first languages because <laughs> uh, because when I was a kid, my mom was reading me in Ukrainian, my father was reading me in Russian, and one of my grandfathers was speaking in a weird mishmash of Russian and Yiddish. Um, that's yeah, uh, fascinating. And I also like, I guess our question to you, and you also write loads about it on Twitter as well, which I, I was reading before we jumped on this um, call, that essentially, I think the way that I see sometimes language in Ukraine covered in a lot of like Western sort of media communication, I'm not talking about more sort of in-depth Western studies on the region and so on and so forth, but just like, you know, Russian speaking Ukrainian, Ukrainian speaking Ukrainians, and it, it's just like, 
this like almost yeah like weird people put it in such black and white terms that it really pisses me off because when when they do that I don't know where I personally stand if that makes sense because I'm like half there half here and it it just like it's like almost people deny me my own Ukrainian identity by really boxing people in so I just wanted to ask you a little bit about um, if you could explain to our audiences and everyone listening a bit about language and maybe language in in Donbass but also more broadly and where we are at now in terms of understanding language in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, because uh, you said uh, many times that uh, the story of Russian language domination in, say, eastern Ukraine is also a perfect story illustration of the colonial legacy that Russia left Ukraine with, right? It is not just a part of, like, blunt colonialism, and we just say, oh, this is this is a spectacular uh, uh, example of colonialism. No, this is, it, it's more complicated because it's tied up with the modernization process, with the growing of the urban centers, with the changes of the uh, changing of the temporality, with the changes of the uh, of the local identity, creation of the local cities, city and identity. And if you look at the uh, Donbas cities of like 20s and 30s, for instance, and you will see a very uh, uneven uh, picture you will not find that all of the people are speaking russian or you will not find this all speaking speaking ukrainian or yiddish you will find the very regular for eastern and southern ukraine uh situation where people are speaking whatever language and for instance in 20s during the colonization process this uh uh, uh, for those who don't know Soviet history, it was the it was moment in the early Soviet twenties, uh, where uh, basically till nineteen twenty seven twenty nine depends on the country, uh, when uh, there was an order to uh, build up the national language in every uh, uh, in every Soviet republic and in Ukraine in re- Soviet republic it was the case where Ukrainian becoming the main language of the country. And uh, uh, for Donbass particularly, this was a very interesting case because some of the people in the, in, in the cities were coming not from primarily Ukrainian-speaking regions or not from the regions where Ukrainian was taught in schools. And for them, there was a hard time. Like if you read 1922 Ukra- uh, uh, newspapers, uh, something like Luhanska uh, Pravda, uh, uh, the, the main... Uh, uh, newspaper of Luhansk at that moment, uh, there were uh, it will be in Ukrainian and it will be in very bad, <laughs> in very grammatically bad Ukrainian uh, sometimes. Uh, but the thing is, and the problem here is that uh, it's not because people uh, were forced to forget the language. It's be- particular because modernization forced lots of people into the urban centers where they uh, were from everywhere. And uh, uh, because it was Russian Empire and then it was Soviet Union, lingua franca, the common language, was becoming Russian. And but as soon as you go out from, um, as soon as you go out from the urban centers, you will hear people speaking Ukrainian, or they speak in the mishmash of languages, or they speak in Yiddish, or they speak in uh, Tatar, uh, and this is, yeah. or they speak in Greek, for instance, in Mariupol, and this is what's uh, this was the part of the uh, 
uh, well, this inheritance of the modernization, the full-scale Russification, also in Donbas, started to happening in after the Second World War. Because the the uh, demographical composition of the region and of the, to be honest, of the whole Ukraine, of course, we know this, this changed, changed dramatically. dramatically. Yeah, and we had, uh, and after that, uh, actually, my family, both parts of Jewish and Ukrainian parts of uh, parts of my family, switched into Russian, particularly in fifties. My grandmother uh, got her uh, got her doctorate. At the Luhansk University, then Vyacheslav Rad University, uh, in 1950, and it was all in Ukrainian. When she got back to teach in, in her hometown of Ravinki, uh, it's like 50 kilometers south from Luhansk, her school where she was taught in Ukrainian in 30s and early 40s was already Russian. I'm not a historian, and for example, my realization of the fallout of Russian colonialism in this region came from personal observations. Because, like, even in my own family, that comes not from urban settlements in um, in Zaporizhia, but from um, from villages. I was growing up seeing that my grandparents and my parents would speak Ukrainian. And then, in some certain situations, and when they would get to the city, they would start speaking Russian. And my parents were the first generation of uh, from in their family that switched to Russian as a primary language. And I was, you know, seeing it as a kid. And I was always wondering why it's happening. If you were born speaking Ukrainian and everybody speaks Ukrainian with, uh, you know, uh, at the dinner table, and then suddenly you have to present this completely different version of yourself. Um, in the city where you have to speak Russian or sound very Russian, and only by realizing it, the reasons behind it, I kind of personally got to the uh, realization of the impact, the depth of the colonialism and what damage it did to our region. And I feel like, I think you said it, um, maybe I'm mistaken, but nevertheless, that because of the power, because of the depth and the power of Russian colonialism and what damage it did to Eastern, Southern Ukraine, people from those regions have the most capacity and the most right to speak about Russian colonialism exactly because of that, because in our you know in our lives through our family histories we know what it did and how it did it so in your case in recent you know months as person who's coming from eastern ukraine seeing especially these days how our cities are being flattened out completely is it 
has it changed in any way um, what it means for you to be Ukrainian these days, or maybe you realize something new, or it stays the same as it was before? For me, the main thing changed after uh, in the last three months. Uh, it's uh, I would say the uh, it gave me more uh, power to. Uh, express what actually I'm thinking of, and 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 gave me courage to shake off lots of things I've been um, I've been actually uh, promoting, and by was by saying that um, we have to realize how different the dif- the difference of the. Uh, different people of of the people in the eastern Ukraine, and we have to be respect respectful. For me, right now, um, uh, Russian language is not anymore of lang- a language of culture or a language of science or a language of uh, anything valuable, as well as uh, um, the region itself and the people of uh, there. Are not they are suffering for years, and we knew this. And for me, the each travel uh, for every place like it, it's uh, it's a coming home, and uh, and the uh, the things I loved the most before I uh, it, it always been field work in in Luhansk Oblast. I uh, so yeah, for me, this situation is a. It has an unbounding effect. It has an effect of liberation and uh, effect of empowerment. This is the main thing, and I believe this is the main uh, trope every Ukrainian has to bear uh, with us because um, because last year, like it's it's very simple thing, also historical. But I want to wrap up wrap this up uh, here. Last year, last summer, we all laughed about this. Uh, Putin's publication on historical, how it's called, historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, something like that, uh, which has supplied the mythical basis for Russian war propaganda, as we now realize it. And we have to understand that, like this essential idea that Russia has the right to to Ukraine, to Ukraine, because of this, uh, that's ha- because of that happened. I don't know, a thousand years ago in Kiev. Uh, at that time, um, the city was trading hub for Viking, sl- Viking slavers uh, who were uh, ganging the dominance over local hazards. It takes fanciful thinking to see here a reason for Russia to invade Ukraine. Mm. In the twenty-first century, and it's seen, and and the preparation it took, and the absurd particulars thoughts are less important than the principle. And if countries can claim other countries on the grounds of millennial myth, the modern state system yeah. will cease to exist tomorrow. And for us, the take uh, taking the responsibility for our culture for our past and and for me honestly and people who know me know that's like i'm a very uh born and uh, person when it comes to detailization of the history because as i mentioned like i 
I I really don't like how done work, uh, and it, why that's why it took me some <laughs> weeks to do this thread because every you you have to bear you have to not just be proud Ukrainian you have to bear responsibility because right now the whole world is watching at you and yeah. you and 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 even even in Europe those people who maybe not really fond of what's happening or what people do or not do, uh, they they looking at you with admiration yeah. amazing i think your answer is also uh, different to some of the answers we've had before i think it's so important to know what you said which is that we have more responsibility than ever to as you say spend time and and um, energy to really provide people with well thought out uh, research. We need to build an expertise. We need yeah, to, we yeah. need to build an expertise and not just be the person who say, "Oh, go read Timothy Snyder or go to read Chiraki <laughs> Kuramiya." Like, of course, and but uh, yeah, absolutely. It's 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 also important for us to be people who say, "Yes, we we thankful for all the intellectual." support for the build-up but in fact what the, people, the work that we need to do yeah, yeah, ourselves but, uh, yeah yeah they, um, they, it's it's they uh, they holding the door for us uh come back to ukrainian spaces again i think this is it for us today thank you so much for joining us this was truly fascinating and i hope um for those of you listening it was also a different perspective than one we've brought uh to you yet uh i think i really enjoyed really focusing our time and attention on on talking about Eastern Ukraine, and I am just really grateful for both Yevgeny and Maxim for today's um, Twitter Spaces, Ukrainian Spaces podcast, wherever you find us and listen to us. Yeah. So thank you so and much. And please, please support also us on the Patreon uh, page as well and become sponsors. This is, I think, that's all, apart from one thing, is uh, Slava Ukraine. Hello, I'm Slava, and see you next time. Bye, guys.